when we read the sacred scriptures, when the gospel is proclaimed to us, we need always to ask the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Because if we depend on our own limited experience and understanding, we're going to go astray. And we only need to look around to see how many different churches there are to know that just reading the scriptures is not necessarily going to lead us to the truth. It does not necessarily enable us to understand God's word. And if we do not understand God's word, how are we going to put it into practice? And if we don't put it into practice, how are we going to be saved? So, as always, we depend on the church, the church Christ founded, and the church alone that is the bulwark and pillar of truth. Today's gospel is a good example of how easy it is to go astray. To go to the end, we know that there are many outside of the church who do not believe that Our Lady is ever virgin. Whereas Catholics, from the very beginning, from apostolic times, have always believed that Our Lady is ever virgin. She was a virgin before the conception of Christ. She was a virgin during the pregnancy and she remained a virgin after his birth. We believe this. We believe it, one, on the authority of the church. We believe it also because we can prove it. But primarily, we believe it because the church teaches us. If we don't believe the church, then we ought not to be in this church. It's as simple as that. But I'm starting at the end. Let's go to the beginning. Where did Jesus go? He went back home with his disciples. He left Jerusalem and he went back home. He brought his disciples with him. The moment he arrives, a huge crowd gathers. And there's a lot of movement. So the Lord cannot even find time to eat. And there are rumors and there are stories of what he has done and what he is saying. And then we're told, when his relatives, relatives, that's the key word, when his relatives heard of this, they set out to take charge of him. Why? Because they had thought, they thought he was mad. He was out of his mind. Notice his relatives. That would be his cousins, his aunts and uncles, whoever. How do they behave? They behave as people who have authority over him because they went to take charge of him. Now, our Lord is called mad by his own family, his relatives. 
But what do the ordinary people think? Well, they think he's a prophet. That's why they gather around him and listen to everything he's saying. But those in authority, the scribes, what do they think? They think he is possessed. Beelzebub is in him. Who is Beelzebub? Beelzebub was the most wicked and foulest of the demons. He was the lord of flies, therefore of corruption. And the scribes are saying he is possessed by this demon. And more, it is through the prince of devils that he casts devils out. So his family think he's mad and the scribes think he's possessed. What do you think? He's a prophet. And more than a prophet, he's the savior of the world. So what does the Lord do? Well, he doesn't address his relatives immediately, but he does address the scribes because they are motivated by malice. They are driven by envy. And because of this, they are heading for the pit. They are going to perdition. And he came because he wants to save everybody. So he does not allow them to continue in that same um, way of thinking. But he's going to draw them back from the pit. When a brother or a sister is in error, we have an obligation to warn them. We cannot just let them carry on in their sin. He who brings a sinner back will save his own soul and cover a multitude of his sins. So the Lord then warns them. It's no use warning them openly because they are hardened already. And so he brings an example from common experience. The example he brings is that of a city. If a kingdom is divided, if there's division in the land, it's not going to be able to defend itself from its enemies. If a family home, a family is divided, they're going to drift away, each man to his own place. Even in the body, the human body, the same thing applies. If we are divided inside, sickness will take over. So then the Lord says, think. If, I, if Satan is casting out Satan, his kingdom is divided and that's the end of him. But if a stronger man comes, he must first tie up the strong man, Satan, and then he's able to burgle his house. And I am that stronger man because I am casting out devils. There is no civil war in hell. And I'm able to cast out devils because I have tied up Satan already. And now, because they are still not listening, he warns them of the consequence of their hardness of heart. 
what have they in, in saying that Christ is possessed, in saying that Christ is in league with devils, not only are they blaspheming the Lord Jesus, but also they are attributing the work he's doing to the power of Satan. In other words, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit as well. And so the Lord warns them, and he warns us too. All sins will be forgiven. All blasphemies can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, he will never have forgiveness because he's guilty of an eternal sin. So we see there are categories of sin. There are mortal sins, there are venial sins, original sins, and our Lord speaks of an eternal sin. What is this eternal sin? The sin that cannot be forgiven. All sins can be forgiven because Christ came to forgive sin. By his death, he forgave sin. By his resurrection, he restored life. He destroyed death. The sin that cannot be forgiven is the stubborn resistance to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is a contempt for his gifts. How do we know this or can we describe them? Yes. The first of them is despair for one's salvation. In other words, to believe I'm such a wicked sinner, I've committed so grievous a sin that God doesn't have enough mercy to forgive me. And there are many who have committed such a sin. We need only think of Judas who would not go back to Christ and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Judas who did not weep as Peter wept. He despaired of salvation, despaired of mercy. At the other end, there are those who say, God is so merciful, no matter what I do, he will forgive me. That is a sin of presumption, also a sin against the Holy Spirit. And we have an example of this in Voltaire, who, when he was dying, asked for a priest. The priest came, he made his confession, he recovered. His friends laughed at him. So this is the great Voltaire who said he was not afraid of God. And Voltaire was ashamed. And he said to them, promise me this, if ever I should fall sick again, no matter how much I beg, do not send for a priest. That is presumption. He did fall sick and his friends refused to call the priest. There's also, and this we have to be very careful of, another sin that cannot be forgiven. Not because God cannot forgive it, but because the person doesn't wish to be forgiven. And that is 
the envy of another's spiritual good. Because somebody has a gift, we want it, or rather, we don't want it for ourselves, that would be jealousy. We don't want them to have it. That is the sin of Cain. He envied his brother's goodness, the fact that his sacrifice was acceptable, and he killed him. Another sin against the Holy Spirit, that of opposing the known truth. The truths of faith. When the church teaches and teaches with authority, we have an obligation to accept it. If we don't understand it, if we find it hard to accept it, pray to the Holy Spirit for the humility to accept it. Otherwise, we're saying, my knowledge is superior to that of the wisdom of the church, a church inspired and directed by the Holy Spirit. Another sin against the Holy Spirit, obstinacy in sin. It's not the sin of someone who is weak and repeats it, but someone who is determined to carry on sinning regardless. So, we have people who live in sin, they live together unmarried and live as man and wife, and still come to communion. That is obstinacy in sin. And then we have another one, the last. Final impenitence. Even on one's deathbed, refusing to even think about God. The sin of Lenin. So these are the ways, and incidentally, you will find all of these in the catechism of the Catholic Church. They're all there. You can't say you don't know. We have it. We have it at our fingertips. So the Lord has warned them. Now he's going to address the other issue. Don't forget, his relatives had come. Who are these relatives? We're told his mother and brothers now arrived and they were waiting outside. They sent a message asking him to come. And the crowd was sitting around. And the man who brought the message, how, what does he say? Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. Now, think of it. You have a family group, fam, fam, relatives, they all come in. Who's the spokesperson? Well, the, usually the person who has the loudest voice, the most bossy person, that's one's in charge, and that's the one who asks. Yet, all those around are associated with it, whether they were asking or not. Agreed? That's how we are. The Lord, we told, he replied to the man. Now this man comes in. He thinks he's got an important job. He's bringing news. And so he's interrupting the Lord's teaching. And he says, your family is outside. Your mother and your brother and your sisters. And the Lord simply replies, to the man because he's correcting the one who is at fault. Who are, my who are my mother and my brothers? 
and looking around to the crowd, says, Here are my, mo my mother and my brothers. And then he explains, Anyone who does the will of God, that person is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, he is not in any way putting down his mother or his family. Not doing that at all. Because what did Our Lady say? Let it be done to me according to your word. So she was the first to do God's will. And when the woman in the crowd said, blessed, blessed are the breasts you sucked, blessed the womb that bore you, he said, yes, but far more blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And that's what Our Lady did. So he's not in any way putting her down. On the contrary, he's saying, imitate her. What, did she, what are her last words? Do whatever he tells you. Those are the last words she speaks to us. So let us now go into the scriptures and see, examine who are these brothers and sisters of the Lord. We will all agree that our Lord was the firstborn of his mother. She was a virgin before. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. And when the angel came to her to ask her about becoming a mother, the mother of the Son of God, she said, how can this be since I am a virgin. But she was engaged, wasn't she? She was betrothed. So why would she say how if she was betrothed? It doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't make sense to me. Unless, unless she intended to remain a virgin. That's the only way it makes sense. Now if she intended to remain a virgin, the angel says it's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. She understands, she says, so be it. And it happens. Do you think then, after becoming, after conceiving the Son of God, miraculously, she would consent to have ordinary children in the ordinary way? Does that make sense? It doesn't to me. Makes no sense to me. But scripture does say he had brothers and sisters. And so we need to answer the question for those who do not believe. Scripture refers to brothers in four different ways. And I should mention that in Aramaic and in Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament there was no word for cousin, no word for uncle, no word for aunt. In the Greek, there is. That's why in Luke's Gospel, we are told, the angel tells Our Lady, that your cousin in her old age, because in Greek it does exist, but not in the Old Testament. Okay. 
So this Old Testament speaks of brothers in four ways. The first, brother according to nature. The second, brother according to nationality. The third, brother according to kindred. And fourthly, brother according to affection. Four ways. According to nature, many examples. Esau and Jacob, they were brothers, they were twins. And that is our common understanding of the word brother. Having the same mother, and not even the same father, but the same mother. We all understand that, so we can move on. According to nation, all Jews regarded themselves as brothers. So much so that in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17.15, we read a commandment. Thou shalt not set over yourselves a foreigner who is not your brother. That's clear. So anyone who does not, who cannot claim descent from Abraham should not rule over the Jews. Okay? So according to nation. According to kindred. Kindred comes from kind, of the same kind. In particular, you've, we have the expression kith and kin. That's where the word comes from. Kind, of the same family. So, we have Abraham and Lot. When we read of Abraham in the 12th chapter of Genesis, leaving Ur, he took with him his brother's son, Lot. In other words, his nephew. They travel around, they both, both grow prosperous. So much so that their herdsmen started to fight. Abraham said, let there be no strife between us because we are brothers. Despite they were uncle, nephew, he says we are brothers. So here we have a classic case. And lastly, there is that of affection. Two kinds. There is the special and the general. So, all Christians are brothers. My brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins. Isn't that how we begin? Do we have the same parent on earth? No, we have the same father in heaven. Hmm? So I can say brothers and sisters. And our Lord himself tells us to do this. When he rose from the dead, what did he say to Mary Magdalene? Go and tell my brothers that I have risen, you see me in Galilee. These are not only the apostles who were not all brothers according to the flesh, but they were brothers because of their special affection to Christ. And then there, in general terms, we talk of brothers, all those who are born of the one father. Say, for instance, we're talking about God being our father, the prophet Isaiah says, 
say to them that hate you, the foreigners, he's speaking to Jews, so he says, say to them that hate you, the foreigners, you are our brothers. We all descended from Adam. Hmm? So we have this case. So we know that scriptures speak of brothers in four ways. So we're now going to narrow it down to the case of our Lord. Which category are these who are his relatives? To which category do they belong? Well, according to nature, that is, are they children of Mary? Well, nowhere are any of them called sons of Mary or sons of Joseph. Nowhere. Only Christ is called the son of Mary. Jesus and his mother were invited. At the cross stood the mother of Jesus. According to nation, well, that is not applicable in this case because all the people there were brothers according to nation. It couldn't apply. The man was referring to some very definite and specific people by affection. Well, could those relatives of his be more, have more um, affection, could our Lord have more affection for them than he would have had for the apostles? And again, the answer is no. So it must be by kindred. It must be according to blood. So, how are we going to decide um, the, that kind of kindred? It's very easy. Because from St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 55, we know four of them by name. Where did this man get this wisdom? Isn't, don't we know his father, the carpenter, and his mother, and are not his brothers with us, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude? They're mentioned by name. That is very good. We're now going to look at these four who are mentioned by name. James. Well, we know of him, he was an apostle. We know this because in the letter to the Galatians, St. Paul says, when he went up to Jerusalem, I met no one except James, the brother of the Lord. Very good. So we look back in the scriptures, and who is James? He's the brother of the Lord. But we, he, he is also called the son of Alphaeus. So he's the son of Alphaeus. Now Joseph is not Alphaeus. We know that. And our lady was never married to Alphaeus. We know that as well. But he's a brother. Therefore, he must be our cousin. What about um, Jude? Well, we know Jude because in his own letter, St. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Christ and 
Guess what? Brother to James. Brother to James, but a servant of Christ. If he were a brother of Christ, according to nature, he would have said so. He did not. He makes a distinction. And of course, he also refers to him as Simon, Simon also as his brother. So in all of this, we can see that our Lord had cousins, but he had no brothers or sisters according to the flesh. Now this is defined doctrine of the church. The church tells us by her own authority that Mary, our lady, had no children according to the flesh except Christ and that she's ever virgin. To deny this is to resist the known truth, a sin against the Holy Spirit. So at the cross stood his mother. Now listen to this. This is in John's, in John's Gospel, the 21st um, chapter, 20, 20th chapter. At the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister. Guess what her name is? His mother's sister. Her name is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Who names, if you have two daughters, do you give them the same name? I don't think so. So they must be cousins. And we're told that the mother of Cleopas, no, sorry, the wife of Cleopas, she was the mother of James and Joseph. We read this in Matthew's Gospel. Our Lady is ever virgin. Why would anyone want to take such an exalted title from her? Unless that person is in league with her deadly enemy, of whom we heard in the first reading. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Let us then ask Our Lady, who is the spouse of the Holy Spirit, and who is seat of wisdom, to give us the wisdom and the humility to believe the full message of the gospel and to preserve us from committing any sins against the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.